Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello and welcome to this Global Council podcast. My name is Stephen Adams. I am the Senior Director uh, of Global Council. And in this podcast, we're going to be addressing the question of the market power of big tech. Uh, clearly, um, last year, like uh, the years before it, um, were, was in some ways the end of the honeymoon uh, for big tech uh, in the US and in the EU, and indeed more, more widely. Um, and the end of the honeymoon produced a range of new political and policy strategies for trying to deal with the perceived market power uh, of the large technology platforms. And in, the, in this podcast, we're going to do a bit of compare and contrast of the approaches of the incoming Biden administration and the current European Commission as they both start signaling their intentions with respect to Big Tech in 2021. Joining me on the podcast uh, from GC's Washington office is Miranda Lutz and in London or in the UK, Max Fontun. They're both senior associates, uh, Max in the GC TMT team and Miranda in the GC US office. Miranda, I want to start with you uh, because uh, in some respects, of course, uh, we've seen a flurry of uh, policy making from the incoming Biden administration, some of it focused on um, on big tech, but give us a sense of what you're expecting to see in the weeks ahead as the Biden administration clarifies its intentions with respect to the big technology platforms. Sure. So the Biden administration came in and largely picked up calls from uh, the progressives, you know, calling that we need to do something on antitrust and potentially breaking up big tech. Um, some policy ideas that were largely um, originating from former presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So as the election started to, to ramp up at the end of last year, we saw Democrats in the House Antitrust Committee released one of the largest reports that the committee has ever put forth um, investigating Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. And they found, in no surprise, that each of these companies possesses a significant market power. And um, they made several uh, recommendations for what Congress could do to address that. Uh, these were very far-reaching. Um, I should say at the beginning that the report was backed only by Democrats on the committee. Um, Republicans agreed and there's consensus that these tech companies have acted anti-competitively, but the remedies in which they uh, want to seek to fix this problem is, is very different. So um, the report called for structural separations, um, prohibiting self-preferencing on platforms, requiring uh, data portability and interoperability interoperability, um, establishing a standard to prescribe strategic acquisitions, um, uh, boosting the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and the Antitrust Division of the DOJ. Um, and so it was, it was a very large to-do list. Um, but just, so that, just before, just, what, what was the theory of harm in the committee's report? I mean, obviously there was a description of some fairly formidable market power, but what were the what was the consequences? What were the consequences of that market power as far as the committee was concerned? So they're arguing that these companies have pushed out 
competitors and basically made it impossible for smaller companies to thrive and operate down the supplier chain. So for instance, when Amazon um, uh, sells products on its platform and then also serves as the, a marketplace, you're kind of double dipping in this sense. So Amazon can scoop up the data on um, you know, what's selling and then use that to preference and benefit its own products. Um, and so the, the issue here is a little bit different than what historically the US has thought of as you know, anti-competitive issues, which is just, is this a harm for the consumer price? Um, and so now we're looking at it from, a, or Democrats are looking at it from a slightly different perspective as to, you know, what's happening to the value chain and the supply chain in the U.S. when, you know, four companies are just gobbling up every sort of, um, you know, competition that's out there. So then um, looking to, to this year and, and under the Biden administration, um, you know, the Georgia elections gave Democrats a 51 seat majority in the Senate. So that meant that um, the committee heads in the Senate are now controlled by Democrats. So that's pretty significant um, in the sense of, you know, certainly should expect, uh, you know, the heads of all of these companies to, you know, be subpoenaed and having to testify before Congress. Um, but one thing I, I do want to pick up on is a bill that was introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is now the chair of the Senate Antitrust Committee. Um, and so she released a bill on, uh, you know, last week on, on Friday that is pretty broad, but notably it is not as broad as what Democrats in the House had released and called for last year. So um, the bill would uh, bar mergers that demonstrably reduce competition. Uh, you know, this is different from um, what, what the current standard is. Um, and it would uh, bar dominant firms from conduct that puts competitors at a, a disadvantage. And it essentially makes it easier for regulators to block mergers um, or to bring antitrust cases. Um, it does not, which is the most interesting thing, bar self-preferencing or bar structural separation. So for instance, um, Amazon would still be under this bill that Klobuchar had proposed, Amazon would still be allowed to operate an e-commerce platform and sell their own products. So that is a, a pretty significant scale, scaling back from what the House Democrats had, had pushed for. And what, why do you think, what's, what motivates the, the scaling back and what happens next with respect to the Klobuchar legislation? So I think the scaling back is largely personal. Um, Senator Klobuchar has um, long been, you know, a, a proponent of finding consensus and, and being more of a, a centrist. Um, and so that kind of structural separation, let's break up big tech, um, is, is you know certainly strong on from progressives and the in the left. Um, but I think that Klobuchar is trying to walk a more centrist line, although notably the bill was introduced with only Democratic co-sponsors. Um, you know, having worked on a hill on the hill, if you're truly aiming for a bipartisan effort, usually you try to bring in Republicans or members from the other party before the bill is introduced. So to a certain extent, this, you know, could be viewed as as, as a messaging for her. She's just now won the, the chairmanship of a fairly powerful subcommittee. Um, so she came out with this, this very large bill. Um, I think looking at the future of, of this type of legislation, it's, it's going to be an, an uphill battle. As I said, the Democrats only have 51 seats in the Senate. That is not enough to pass 
um, antitrust legislation. So you would need to pick up at least nine Republican um, votes, which may seem, um, you know, like a, a small amount, but it, it is pretty sizable. Um, especially when you're looking at the timing of, you know, what Congress has to do over the next 12 months, which is really all they have in the times to be actually productive given the pressures of the midterms, which will be in 2022. Um, okay, so, so there's obviously quite a lot on the legislative side, although as you say, it's gonna be a question of uh, bipartisan co coalition building as much as anything. What, what about on the judicial track? I mean, the, the FTC and the DOJ cases against Facebook and Google, where do you see them going under the new administration? Those will absolutely be continued, um, particularly uh, the, the Google case um, at, at DOJ um, is somewhat narrow in scope right now. So there are strong efforts um, from people within Biden's um, you know, agency review transition teams to expand the scope of those Google um, of the Google case to look at its maps, uh, its um, app store, um, a number of other areas, because right now it's just looking at its search and search advertising businesses and its um, you know, market power with mobile phones and being the uh, search uh, advertise or the search um, engine of choice on you know, Apple phones. Um, so those will definitely continue. Um, the FTC and DOJ just notably are, are somewhat under-resourced. Um, so you're not gonna get a deluge of other antitrust cases, but there will certainly be an effort on um, making sure that the remedies are effective deterrence. So with Democrats coming into power at the, at the FTC and particularly, I think we'll see much bigger fines for these companies, um, much stricter remedies. So the FTC kind of infamously uh, fined uh, Facebook $5 billion for data privacy violations, and that was thought to be too small of a fine. So, um, you know, that puts into perspective, you know, what we're looking at here. Um, but I think that, you know, these will these will continue, um, and they're certainly bipartisan efforts. You know, they may be some of the only cases that the Biden administration will continue that were, were started under the Trump administration. Okay, so clearly something of a head of steam in terms of the administration's concerns about big tech. Obviously, a very interesting uh, set of um, judicial um, uh, cases to, to watch and some appetite there, certainly for an element of ex post discipline of these companies. But Max, let's just turn to you now. Uh, to what extent um, do we see a mirror for this sort of activity in the US, in the EU, um, or in Europe? Um, and where, where do you see the EU's version of this debate going in 2021 and thereafter? Sure. I mean, there are definitely a lot of similarities between what's going on in the US and what's going on in Europe. Um, I think the first point to make is that, you know, Europe, in particular, the, the EU Commission has been at it for quite a lot longer. Um, so, you know, the Commission has been launching individual antitrust investigations into the likes of Google, uh, Apple, Facebook and others since about 2010. So, that, you know, over a decade now. Um, 
including into uh, Google, it's Google's perceived dominance of search and the use of, of Android to entrench that, uh, pre the preferencing of Google shopping service uh, via its search function is, and, and the uh, Apple's tax arrangements with Ireland. And most of those have kind of reached a conclusion and, and led to the quite large fines being levied. And, and that's activity that's ongoing. So the commission is currently uh, running investigations into Apple and Amazon uh, with a particular focus on sort of how they use um, their platforms, you know, in Apple's case, the App Store and, and Amazon, their sort of e-commerce platform uh, to sort of essentially maintain and expand their dominance, particularly in terms of how they treat suppliers. Um, so that's kind of ongoing and has been going on for a while. But what we've seen recently is the EU, the, the Commission in particular, has been moving towards the view that ultimately this kind of ex post enforcement, uh, so these kind of individual cases against platforms uh, after the perceived anti-competitive abuse has taken place in order to sort of let's essentially punish them for it. Uh, the, the commission has essentially come to the view that that is not sufficient, uh, that that sort of activity ultimately is, is not fast paced enough. So it, it takes place again after the practices have happened and long after uh, they've sort of been used to entrench dominance. And so they've been shifting more towards an approach, uh, what, what's, what's known as ex-ante regulation of um, essentially imposing rules on the big tech platforms to prevent these kinds of abuses from taking place in the first place. Um, and so we saw a big, a big kind of landmark development in that area uh, December of last year. The commission published uh, what's called the Digital Markets Act, which is it's a legislative proposal, so it still needs to, uh, you know, be reviewed by the EU Parliament, by the Council, and then be subject to quite a long process of negotiations. But essentially, uh, what it's proposing is that a number of the biggest platforms, what the, what would be called gatekeepers, would be designated as such in law, uh, and after that point, they would be subject to quite a detailed list of obligations. Uh, relating to sort of some of the practices I was talking about with the Commission's pre previous antitrust investigations, uh, as well as many of the things Miranda was talking about that were highlighted by the uh, Congressional Committee around uh, self-preferencing of products, of um, using data of competitors, uh, of sort of locking users in, both on, the, on sort of users and business customers. Uh, and so the, the, D the Digital Markets Act or DMA kind of sets out a whole list of things that these platforms would no longer be able to do. Uh, and if they were to sort of break those rules, they would be subject to quite large fines, up to 10% of turnover is what the commission's proposing. Uh, and potentially in stream ca extreme cases, they could even be sort of broken up. So you would see some kind of uh, structural remedies. Um, so that's a kind of big, big shift in the kind of conceptual approach the commission's taking. Uh, and and what do you think is driving that, um, that evolution of European thinking? Um, I think, as I sort of alluded to just now, it's a, it's a kind of recognition that ultimately these sort of individual investigations, while they may have sort of generated some revenue for the Commission in terms of fines, they haven't really brought about behavioral change, they haven't really made a dent in the market power of the likes of Google, uh, who, you know, they've been fined around 8 billion now over, over, over the years, but there's been no real sort of challenge to their position in search. Uh, or in advertising. So I think it's the sense that actually to, to bring about real change, they need, there needs to be a different approach. Um, and I think just a, a sort of realization that, that there needs to be sort of broader regulatory framework uh, 
that that is able to essentially sort of be in place permanently. And so the commission isn't, isn't just sort of firing off investigations and constantly running after these companies. And how, how have the, the, big, the big tech platforms themselves responded to the proposals in the DMA? So, so far it's been, it's been actually surprisingly muted. Um, so there hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, kind of outright opposition from, from any of the kind of companies you'd expect, you know, Google, Apple, Amazon sort of saying that they don't think the, the, the legislation should happen. They've, they've sort of brought in very vague terms, welcomed it. Um, but, you know, what's likely happening is they're quite active behind the scenes, you know, essentially seeking to influence member states, key stakeholders uh, in the parliament uh, to sort of, while not, again, prevent this legislation from being enacted at all, uh, watering it down in ways that are sort of conducive to their to their interests. So some of these obligations that I've been talking about, for example, they may want some of those to be removed or to be defined in different ways. So I think that's the sort of stuff, you, activity you'll be expecting. And how long does it take for the DMA to become law? So the commission, um, what, when they published the DMA, they sort of set an optimistic trajectory of about 18 months. Um, I stress the kind of optimistic part because that would be reliant on uh, sort of pretty much clear consensus from the parliament and, and the member states for it. Uh, and, you know, kind of quick movement through, through both of those. But I think ultimately given this is a, a huge uh, increase in the EU's regulatory armory when it comes to big tech and the sort of multiple interests at stake, uh, including these very powerful tech platforms, which we've been talking about, realistically we're looking at something more like two to three years uh, until this comes into law but where are the sources of contestation inside the eu for the approach that the commission's proposing to take though uh so while again as uh, you're not really seeing outright opposition to it you know not from member states not from sort of parliamentarians but where there is a lot of debate uh is around basically well particularly the, some of the structural remedies uh, I was talking about. Uh, so even before the DMA was published, there was quite a lot of wrangling inside the commission about whether to include those or not, uh, given, you know, unsurprisingly, some sort of policymakers see it as going too far, threatening to break up these companies. Um, that's something that's likely to continue as we kind of go to the, the sort of institutional scrutiny and, and negotiations. And some stakeholders have again voiced concerns about that side of things. Uh, there are also concerns about some of the timelines in the legislation. So the, the amount of time that gatekeepers would be given once designated to comply with the obligations, I believe that's about six months. And some are saying that ultimately that's too slow and they want them to be introduced quicker. Uh, and then a sort of key area, which we haven't seen much discussion of yet, but which as, as we sort of get close to implementation, you'd expect to really flare up is uh, the DMA contains specific thresholds uh, above which a platform would be categorized as a, as a gatekeeper. Uh, and you know, ultimately given that will determine which companies are or are not gatekeepers, uh, you'd imagine there'll be quite sort of heated debate about who's included and, and, and who isn't uh, mm. in that ultimately. But the, the direction of travel certainly seems to be established. And as you say, this key point about deciding after a decade of reflection, to start taking the question of ex-ante remedies seriously is a big conceptual change. I, I mean, just to come back to you, Miranda, on that specific point, I mean, do you think that this is the kind of idea that ultimately takes root in the US competition theory 
competition policy debate as well. I mean, the language of gatekeepers, as Max has just set it out, seems to be absent from the US framing of the problem. Do you think there's a reason why we haven't seen more interest in ex-ante regulation in the in, in the States? Is it just the question of these companies being big and being American and already being established and then therefore a shift to ex-ante regulation implies some fairly serious impacts for them potentially? Or is there is there is there something else going on here? No, I think you hit the the nail on the head there. I think that a lot of this is coming from, or the the lack of the ex anti ex anti uh, regulations coming from the fact that these are just American U.S. companies. Um, so there's you know generally a hesitation amongst uh, policymakers to want to harm folks that are in your own backyard. Um, I think that another aspect that's played into this is the fact that there was a huge upskilling that needed to happen amongst policymakers and has happened over the past four years. If you look back to hearings that were held um, you know, in 2016, 2017 on, on tech and anti-competitive issues, uh, there was a huge knowledge gap. And so in the past four years, uh, Congress has made a very concerted effort to educate members and to hire, frankly, um, you know, better staff that are more well-versed in these issues. That said, the U.S. is still uh, very far behind where the EU and, you know, even the UK to a certain extent is on on these issues. Um, you know, the, like you said, the gatekeepers and is is very much not a part of the, the debate. At the moment, we're just trying to make it easier or lawmakers are just trying to make it easier to bring antitrust cases against these companies after harms, um, you know, have already been, you know, arguably demonstrated. So that's a very big philosophical difference. Um, and so as in other cases in tech, if you look to data privacy, the US has generally trailed the EU um, in terms of you know, being proactive in the regulatory space. So I think that we could see some similar trends play out where the EU you know, is you know, a few years ahead and moves ahead um, and is, is regulating these companies and imposing requirements on these companies that's very different from where the US is right now. Max, just I mean, Miranda, of course, rightly reminds us there that there are, of course, two big actors on your side of the Atlantic. In this case, the, the UK is now outside of the EU's common competition policy. So to what extent is the UK taking its own path here? And is that path ultimately bending more towards the route being mapped out by Brussels, or do you expect to see it somewhere more in the mid-Atlantic or uh, mirroring US policy? Yeah, so on the UK, I would actually say the two kind of jurisdictions are following surprisingly similar trajectories. Um, so the UK has not, you know, over the past decade been as active as the Commission has, again, in this kind of ex-post enforcement that I've been talking about. So there have been far fewer cases, if, if any, launched against big tech companies. Uh, and, you know, the sort of fines on, uh, that have been levied in, the, in Europe, we haven't really seen a comparison to that in the UK. Um, there are recently that has changed a little bit. So the CMA, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, the UK's competition regulator, uh, investigated um, an, an attempt by Amazon to take a stake in Deliveroo. That was quite a long investigation and it, it looked like it could ultimately scupper the investment. It did happen in the end. Um, they're currently looking into Facebook's uh, attempt to acquire uh, Giphy, 
Uh, and uh, there are a couple of other investigators that are looking into ARM NVIDIA as well. So they have become more active in that ex post space, but again, less so than the commission. But what we have seen kind of, which mirrors the, the approach with the commission is a move towards uh, sort of looking at this through a prism of, of ex ante regulation. Um, it kicked off really uh, when the former chancellor, Philip Hammond, uh, commissioned a, a report by, uh, led by someone called uh, Jason Furman, who's a former economic advisor to President Obama. So that, there's a kind of interesting example of a sort of transatlantic link here. Uh, that, led, that, was, that led to an initial report, which essentially said that, you know, again, ex post enforcement was, was not uh, effective enough and that the UK needed to revamp its digital competition rules to really uh, account for the power of big tech platforms. Uh, and it identified many of the sort of problematic practices that we've been talking about so far around, around preferencing and, and, and also particularly focused on uh, the use of, of acquisitions to basically entrench market power by the big tech platforms. Um, that report sort of sat around for a while, but then uh, it was accepted formally by the government last year, March of last year. So the government accepted all of the Furman Review's recommendations, which was actually a bit of, a bit of a surprise as there were quite a lot of uh, sort of suspicions that you know, the conservative government wouldn't be that interested in this agenda, uh, particularly sort of following Boris Johnson's win and that it would sort of be left to, to gather dust, but that's not what happened. So. They were formally accepted. The, the government then set up a, a dedicated task force featuring the CMA as well as, well as other kind of key digital regulators in the UK to sort of look into uh, those, the Furman recommendations and come up with some really practical uh, suggestions to the government on, on how to take that forward. Uh, those were finally published last December. So I think a week after the EU's Digital Markets Act uh, was published. So that everything's sort of happening very close on time. Uh, and those recommendations called for setting up um, a new regime in the UK, an Accenture regime, uh, which would apply to platforms which would be uh, labeled as um, to hold significant market stat status. So quite similar to the gatekeeper notion, you know, platforms that have a kind of structurally significant role in their market have a huge sort of uh, control over both users and business customers. Uh, and suggests again, um, sort of obligations, the CMA calls it codes of conduct that these companies would be required to follow once they were given this status. Um, so again, that's quite similar to what we're hearing from the EU and the, gov the government has uh, now accepted that report from the task force and it's planning to set up a, a digital markets unit, so a dedicated unit which would be responsible for enforcing this. Um, where I would point to a key difference with the EU, but this is sort of more of a, a difference of emphasis is around uh, these obligations that these sort of significant platforms or gatekeeper platforms would face. So whereas in the EU, the commission is talking, it's essentially trying to come up with a list of all the practices that they do not want to see happening. And they're very specific on that. Um, the CMA is taking more of an approach of essentially establishing the regime and legislation. So establishing this unit and the kind of principles, but not actually trying to define all those specific obligations and, and giving this unit a lot of um, autonomy to basically come up with uh, obligations for platforms based on you know, the sort of market harms that they've identified. So, so I, I think the UK will see it taking a more, a more flexible approach, but broadly aligned to, mm -hmm. to what we're seeing in, in the EU. Okay, so I mean, we've got three big jurisdictions, all in their own ways, taking slightly different approaches. These are these are, of course, all directed at companies that operate in all three jurisdictions. So, I mean, what are the implications for the platforms, for the coherence of policy, for the impact of policy? 
of an uncoordinated response across these three big rule makers? Miranda, maybe start with you. Sure. So I think if you look at, you know, these companies are multi-jurisdictional, they operate everywhere, um, you know, in the world. And so and if you're going to have an effective um, antitrust or anti-competitive regime, um, you know, I think you really would expect to see greater collaboration and greater cooperation on these issues, because as um, Max alluded to, if you have this gatekeeper notion in the EU, that could um, have some very real implications for the business operations and business strategies for these companies. So you're looking at a very potential bifurcated approach, um, and that could have some um, as I said, pretty strong um, implications for how these companies operate. And so without this coordination or at least consensus on even have to, how to approach antitrust, you know, is it ex ante or ex post? And the U.S., as we said, are, are several years behind where the, the EU and U.K. are in this. Um, it seems like we're, we're missing some some action um, and we're missing the or the governments are missing the opportunity to make any sort of real tangible changes to these companies. Um, Max, I don't know if you have a, a different opinion from the other side of the Atlantic. No, no, I mean, I, I, I fully agree with that. Uh, I just think, you know, given we're talking about sort of tr truly global platforms, ultimately it, it just logically follows that a sort of global or at, or at least kind of transatlantic approach would be most effective rather than a purely kind of European one. Um, I think also the kind of bifurcation point is interesting. I mean, if you just think about sort of some of the stuff that is being proposed in the EU and in the UK uh, about the kind of regulations that these platforms would have to follow, these are kind of very specific uh, and quite uh, kind of in-depth sort of commitments that you have to follow, which would sort of change the way they operate quite significantly, you know, on a technical level as well, in terms of how they use data, in terms of the sort of transparency they have to provide to customers. Um, and it's sort of, it's just thinking about how these platforms would implement that, it, 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 you, you sort of can get to some quite, quite strange consequences where these almost start to look like different businesses uh, sort of across the Atlantic. And, and even, you know, some of the obligations around, for example, transparency that are meant to benefit their, their, cust their business customers, for example, some of those customers will also be operating in, the, in, in Europe and in the US. And they will find it probably strange to have benefits in Europe around the information that these platforms provide them or, you know, bans on self-preferencing that are still continuing in the US. So you may see pressure as well coming from some of the kind of beneficiaries of this in Europe to see the same thing uh, in the US, you know, in some ways, maybe similar to what we've seen with with GDPR leading to a pressure to kind of apply similar rules across the world just to kind of have a, a consistent uh, regulatory landscape. Yeah. Okay. So exit question to both of you, short and sharp. Um, in this area, Miranda, the, the one thing you would watch above all else in 2021, the one development to keep your eye on? I would watch the how discussions of 230, which is the tech liability platform or tech liability protections interplay with this antitrust effort. So in the past, um, reforms to change section 230 have been deeply intertwined in both rhetoric and in policymaking in the US as kind of all the issues that big tech has to face. Um, so if lawmakers are able to successfully parse out and divide these two issue areas, then we could see some 
um, potential for actual real policy changes. Um, I would also watch who gets appointed to the FTC under Biden. Um, that has not been announced yet, but there are names like uh, Lena Khan, who wrote uh, the House Democrats antitrust report. Um, she has been floated as a potential appointment. Um, so watching that space will be uh, very indicative of how robust of enforcement regime we can expect under Biden. And Max, as the DMA makes its way through co-decision? So I would actually say if we're talking about 2021, yeah, yes, it'll be important to follow the DMA, but given sort of some of the things I mentioned about, you know, expecting quite a slow legislative process, I would actually think the UK might be a more interesting uh, case to follow this year, given the sort of, you know, the UK's ability to push legislation through faster. Uh, and, you know, assuming there isn't kind of any major roadblocks in terms of parliamentary opposition to the, the what the CMA is proposing, I think we could actually start to see what the implementation of a system like this looks like uh, in the UK sooner than we do in Europe, which will have sort of all sorts of interesting uh, kind of lessons for the EU and for other, other jurisdictions looking to go down this path. Okay, so Max and Miranda have produced a research note on this subject, a, an, an, an elaborated compare and contrast between developments in the EU and the US. It's available on the GC website. Um, thanks to Miranda, thanks to Max, and thanks to you for listening. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.